So we are here tonight to talk about the Poor People's Campaign National Call for Moral Revival. Uh, if uh, you check most history-type things, they'll say that uh, the first Poor People's Campaign was in 1968, uh, begun by Dr. King. But if you go back even a little and a lot further, you're going to find out that there was a Poor People's Campaign long before Dr. King. There's a Poor People's Campaign that explained the plight of the poor and a campaign that explained what responsibilities people had to the poor. And to find that campaign, you just have to look through a few books. And Tom, if you would advance the slide, we're going to look at the first Poor People's Campaign, which actually came in every major world religion that there is. The plight of the poor and our response to it. And it can all be summed up in the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. And every world religion has addressed that. Dr. King, in his prophetic wisdom, realized at that time in our history, as in many times in our history, we were falling behind in that very same plan that had been laid out through the centuries to people of all faiths. So the Poor People's Campaign title and what the Poor People's Campaign for the National Call, a National Call for Moral Revival, we do have our roots in the 1968 campaign. And Tom, if you advance. That's today. Now that man in the center, that's Dr. Reverend Dr. William Barber. We heard him speaking. He is uh, probably the, the greatest figurehead, uh, heart and soul uh, speaker involved with the Poor People's Campaign. You can't miss him. Uh, and next to him is Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who is also his co-leader in the national campaign. And so, Tom, if you move on. Now, exactly what it is, these are the things that they're taking a stand against. The systemic racism, poverty, the war economy and militarism, ecological devastation, and our nation's distorted moral narrative of Christian nationalism. So that's what it's all about. And that has its uh, beginnings back in 1968, where we should get to now, if we're, go ahead, there we go. So, in 1967, Dr. King had looked at what was going on. Uh, they had achieved the Civil Rights Act of 64. They had achieved the Voting Rights Act of 65. And he said, we're just getting started. And we've got to keep going because we don't have economic justice right now. And... Uh, Immediately, that put him in opposition with a lot of people. Uh, his own uh, uh, colleagues from the civil rights movement split into some different factions. There were those who felt that what they did with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, that's good enough. Stop. 
We don't need to do anything else right now. So his own people were saying stop. But yet there was another faction within the civil rights movement that was saying, no, 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 you're getting off track here by pulling in this poor people and multi, you gotta stay focused on what's happening to the African American community. So we got pushback from them. He also had the pushback coming from the black power movement that felt that his nonviolent stance was just not going to make it anymore. And so the very people that supported him during the earlier 60s started to turn away from him and he started to to really be that lone voice, that lone prophet out in the wilderness. And of course, he already had those who were against him to begin with, the KKK and the segregationists, the white supremacists, they were already against him. The FBI had one of the most massive smear campaigns against any American citizen ever. It's been documented in the Freedom of Information Act, the things that they did and wrote and said about him, trying to discredit him. The John Birch Society was trying, because of his, uh, his activities, trying to label him a communist, putting up billboards of Dr. King supposedly at his communist school when actually he was at the Freedom School when the picture was taken. Um, and his anti-war stance had put him in opposition with President Johnson. So when all of this was going on, King was at his lowest physically and support-wise, he was at his lowest, but he was also at his most prophetic, and he was about to achieve his most great, his greatest uh, uh, stance of all. But it was difficult. The labor unions were against, I mean, the labor unions who were still actively use, uh, participating in discrimination, they didn't want to have anything to do with his economic revival. And the anti-labor people who didn't want the unions at all, they didn't want his stuff. And so King was pretty much out there crying in the wilderness saying, folks, people are hurting and we've got to do something about this. Uh, it's really not, he kind of, you know, he prophesied about his death many times. Uh, and it really is when you read the list of things and people that he was systematically making very uncomfortable, it's really not that surprising that uh, his life was taken at that time. Um, like I said, I'm no expert. A lot of what I've learned I took from this book straight from our lovely public library. Uh, to the Promised Land, Martin Luther King and the Fight for Economic Justice by Michael Honey, who is a professor of civil rights and uh, labor rights and relations, and uh, it's large print, so uh, <laughs> it's a good one. But uh, so we have in 1968, King, King or 67 actually, King decided that just having just because you could sit at a lunch counter now didn't mean anything if you couldn't afford to buy lunch once you got there. So, and that it was a, a cruel jest to say to someone, pull yourself up by your bootstraps if they don't have any boots. And so that kind of thinking led Dr. King to say, we have to have economic justice and that's gonna cut across racial lines, that's gonna cut across faith lines because the poor 
encompass all of the faiths and all of the races. And so um, he went down to uh, the sanitation worker strike back in March before uh, his death in April. Uh, he went down there again promoting his economic rights and standing with the unions. Uh, they had a march that, well, it was supposed to be a peaceful march uh, shortly uh, at the end of March, 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 March. The end of March, they had a march, and it was supposed to be a peaceful march, but there were agitators in the crowd that whipped up some of the youth who did throw uh, some things and break some windows. Uh, but by most accounts of those who were there, what that created was a police riot. It was escalated by the police, and it was a definite tactic to undermine the Poor People's Campaign, which was scheduled to start in just a few months. And so they, they like to say that this Dr. King man of peace sure has a lot of violence everywhere he goes, and so those who were out to discredit him wanted it to be uh, a violent protest, which it was, which is why King went back uh, in April because he was trying to, to salvage the negative perception that they were trying to bring out to the Poor People's Campaign that was scheduled. And so um, he went back, and then, of course, on uh, April 4th, then he was assassinated. So, but it did not kill the campaign. The Poor People's Campaign did go on. And Tom, if you go to the next screen. Now, what they were supposed to do is it was supposed to be a three-phased campaign. And it started with the tent uh, city, the Resurrection City. And they were calling the poor to go to the National Mall, set up your tent city. We want to show our leaders and our legislators, we want them to see the face of the poor. And it did take place. Um, they were there for about six weeks, and it rained terribly on them while they were there. Uh, it was besieged by violence from the outside and by acts of violence on the inside. And so eventually it was broken up uh, by police, tear gas, they went in and closed it up. And that pretty much ended it. During, during that time, uh, Bobby Kennedy was also assassinated. And so by the time they had lost Dr. King and Senator Kennedy, and then they had the tent city torn down, they never got to the other two phases, which were supposed to be the public demonstrations, the nonviolent uh, disobedience, civil disobedience, and uh, the third was supposed to be major boycotts, and uh, those never came to be. There are some history books that say that the campaign was a failure, and some who say the campaign was not a success. So uh, it's a kind of way of looking at it. Uh, I don't think history is finished with the Poor People's Campaign, however. I think it may have been you know, suspended for a little while, but uh, I don't think it's finished because 50 years later, as the um, anniversary of Dr. King's assassination and the anniversary of the, poor, the first Poor People's Campaign came out, a study was commissioned, and they wanted to get their facts straight on what exactly has happened to the poor in the last 50 years. 
And so this is called The Souls of Poor Folk. You can find it online. And it goes through uh, and it examines, you know, statistical data on what it's like to be poor in America today. And uh, go ahead, Tom. The two major myths that are debunked in that particular report are, number one, that poverty is the fault of the poor. And how many times do we hear that today? If you're poor, it's your own fault. You're not working hard enough. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. It's your own fault. This report clearly shows that that is not true, that there are systemic issues and systemic barriers in place that are keeping the poor poor and actually driving more people into levels of poverty. And then the second one is the, the myth that there's just not enough for everybody. I got to get mine and you can't have yours. We just don't have enough. We do have enough. We're just not willing to share what we have. That's the problem. So those are debunked in this report. Hey, Tom. Now, when we gave our presentation at Faith Fest, we did a lot with um, the agenda and the demands. And so we haven't done that much Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and there is a reason why we always say that long tagline, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, online, you can read the list of demands. It's about 20-some pages long, and it explains exactly what from the Souls report, what they found, and why that becomes a demand. And so just three of the things that came up when we did our presentation at Faith Fest this year that caught my attention uh, from the report. Before the 2016 presidential election, there were 868 fewer polling places across the country. Gee, wouldn't that a shock there, how that happened. Uh, the number of sentenced state and federal inmates grew from 188,000 in 1968 to nearly 1.5 million in 2016. Two-thirds of these inmates are people of color, while Native Americans are incarcerated at a 38% higher rate than the national average. And that is not a misprint. That is Native Americans. That is what's happening in that community. In 2016, CEOs of the top five military contractors earned on average $19.2 million each, more than 90 times the $214,000 earned by a U.S. general with 20 years of experience and 640 times the $30,000 earned by Army privates in combat. And private water utilities, privatized water because, you know, we can't keep up our stuff, so we'll just sell this off and then we'll have this company give you water. They charge 59% more per unit of water than publicly owned water systems. So we're, we can't afford water in a, in a world that's made up of water. So those are just some of the facts that were found in this Souls report and why the agenda is and why the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is today alive and well. So, Tom, so then we get to the Kentucky Poor People's Campaign. Every, well, not every state, I think we're up to 40 states now. Have, is it 40, Mary? 40 states that have active Poor People's Campaign. It is a grassroots effort. The idea is for the states 
to address their problems, but we have the national network as well. Uh, Dr. Barber is, uh, loves to say that we are creating an organism and not an organization because organisms grow up where they need to grow. Organizations have this nice little chart. And the Poor People's Campaign, we don't have a nice little chart. We go where the need is and we do what needs to be done. Uh, he also loves to say that this is a movement and not a moment. And so it's not all going to happen today, but uh, we keep moving. So uh, that's the Kentucky Poor People's Campaign. And so this past year, or this past May, June, uh, we had 40 days of direct action. Now, Mary was there. Mary, you want to talk a little bit about your week of going up there? And then the following week, there was uh, each of the six weeks that kind of highlighted different areas. So Mary went up for medical. I went up for education. And Tom, our computer man, was with us, uh, with me up there for that. And we were also blocked by our governor from going in. But what I thought was interesting is that before you actually attend the action at the Capitol, you meet beforehand and then people get their assignments, what they're willing to do. If they're willing to be arrested, then they meet with the lawyer and they give their uh, contact information, how they can get bail and things like that. And other people who are you know, willing to film it and those that are willing to be witnesses to it. Uh, Tom and I volunteered to be witnesses to it. We, we were not getting arrested and we weren't filming anything, but we did stand outside and say, let us in, let us in. But uh, yeah, baby steps on this stuff here, baby steps. But um, it was interesting, there were three women that were there in the morning who said um, that they had been to the Capitol just dressed as regular people 
and they were stopped and asked if they were part of the Poor People's Campaign. So I guess there's activist profiling going on now. I don't know if we, we look a certain way or how they know us, you know, because they didn't, they didn't have the shirts on. They just walked up there and to, <laughs> they went up there and they were told that if they were with, the, and this is at 10 o'clock in the morning, there's no protest going on anywhere, but if they were with the Poor People's Campaign, they were not, only two of them would be allowed in at a time. So, um, which is just craziness to me. And uh, that was uh, overturned by order, not by law, uh, by uh, the Attorney General Bashir. And so they were allowed to go in after that. Uh, there were about four weeks, I think, we weren't allowed in there. But the, the African-American gentleman in the center with the white and the red shirt, that's Dr. Arnold Farr. And he will be the one speaking at the Martin Luther King Day March. And so he's a much better expert on what's going on in Kentucky. But uh, that was our experience there. And so now we want to talk a little bit about what's going on. If you are not, uh, if you're a Facebook person, I encourage you to become a Facebook follower of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Uh, because they post just about every day what's going on somewhere in this country that they're working. And right now, um, they were down there at the border. They, uh, and this is what Dr. Barber had to say. I'll read that. Let's be clear. The Trump administration does not fear migrants because they truly think they are terrorists. That's just the message they're preaching to their political base. In reality, the larger threat is that the white dominance in America is being threatened by the change in demographics. More brown people are moving to our shores and more families are becoming integrated. And soon there will be a growing number of people of color that can vote. And so that's Dr. Parber's quote from 2019. So they're down there working on that. Uh, they are... Uh, Petitions are coming up all the time. I just got one the other night about they'll, they'll patch you right into your uh, senator. You know, uh, Senator McConnell, his mailbox was full and wasn't able to take any more. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Rand Paul, I did leave my message for Rand Paul. So, um, so whether it's petitions or phone calls, they are, you know, doing what they can. And, you know, I used to not, I, I am not an activist, folks. This is just so not me. It's unbelievable. But, um, you know, I think about those words of, I, I believe they're kings, who said, you know, it isn't the words of my enemy that hurts so much. It's the silence of my friends. And I can't be silent anymore. I was silent too long. And um, so whether it's, you know, people say, well, all I did. No, that's, that's not a little bit. Because if, if we don't stand up and say something's wrong, they're going to say, well, nobody complained. So, okay, Tom. Oh, the voter suppression. We were supposed to, the, the national campaign was going to be there at the Capitol, uh, but they suspended that in Washington, D.C., but we were at uh, the most recent one. You want to talk about what you just did up in there?
and they, uh, the, the um, Poor People's Campaign had like a 30-minute vigil prayer time before, and then the Kentucky Council of Churches did a little presentation and, and talked about what their plans are during the, uh, the session of, of Congress, State Congress this year. Uh, and then we gathered to meet uh, Jim Glenn. There's a tunnel that connects the annex to the rotunda, and one of the um, uh, organizers said that that tunnel usually is open to the public. She came through, she has a lobbyist uh, tag, and she came through with somebody else, and the police stopped her and said, it's, it's not open anymore. She could go through because she had the tag, but he couldn't because he was just a regular citizen. Uh, so we didn't go down that And this quote, uh, oops, I'll read that quote at the top because it's kind of tiny. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, has been raising the crisis of voter suppression since our very beginning. We are building power among 140 million black, brown, and white poor people. To do that, our first step needs to be restoring and expanding the Voting Rights Act immediately. After that, we must make voting accessible everywhere, period. So you pretty much can't tune into anything about the Poor People's Campaign without the call for voter registration and for an end to the, the practices that are out there trying to limit the voices of, the, of, of American citizens. So that's big on their list of things to do these days. Okay, Tom. Now, if you, the National Watch Night Service was just back on December 31st. And uh, if you have not had it, if you didn't have a chance to see it live streamed, I've never watched a national, white, uh, national watch night service in my life, but I watched this one and by the end of it, I was applauding my computer and tears were streaming down my face. So um, I'm going to read something that is very similar to what Dr. Barber did. Now, I am no Dr. Barber, and any of you who have ever heard him preach knows he can blow the roof off of a place when he goes. So I will do no justice to the style, but the words that he, is, that he wrote in this particular uh, address that he gave to the NAACP back in 2017, they definitely mirror what he said that night, and I think it really helps encapsulize what it is about this movement that is drawing people in. So this is from his book, Revive Us Again, Vision and Action in Moral Organizing. And it's a collection of his sermons in the last few years leading up to the uh, Poor People's Campaign National Call for Moral Revival's uh, inception. 
and then there are commentaries by others. But this is, this is a speech he gave to the NAACP uh, back in uh, 2017. And this is what he has to say. The theme for it was immovable. And so uh, he was talking about we will move when you stop doing X, Y, Z. So he says, and I quote Dr. Barber, if you want us to move, then stop killing all our men and women, girls and boys. Stop profiling and punishing and stop the shooting to death and choking to death by rogue cops who hide behind badges in order to hide their racism and get off scot-free. If you want us to move, tell those states, those 33 states that are passing and trying to pass racial voter suppression laws, to stop. Tell them that long before Russia ever hacked our political system, racism had already done it. Tell them what we see, that we see the 900 fewer sites to vote in the black community and the hundreds of thousands of votes that were suppressed in the last election. Tell them that we understand that 22 states had, that passed voter suppression laws represent 44 senators and 51% of the United States Congress and 54% of all African American voters. Tell them that case after case has proven intentional and surgical racism. Tell them, it, tell them if you want us to move, stop appointing attorney generals who are against voting rights. If you want us to move, then stop blocking full restoration of the Voting Rights Act for over 1,450 days. If you want us to move, then stop setting up phony voter integrity commissions and stop racist redistricting. If you want us to move, tell politicians who got health care from public money to stop trying to take health care from nearly 30 million people. Tell them to stop passing policies that are nothing more than political murder because thousands will die. If you want us to move, tell those politicians that are sold out to greed and want to give $700 billion back to greedy corporations, you want us to move, tell them to stop. We haven't seen this kind of transfer of wealth since the wealth that was transferred on the backs of slaves. According to the Economic History Association Encyclopedia in 1860, the receipt price for every slave in America was $3.6 billion. $700 billion is 190 times more than the receipt price of slaves in 1860. If you want us to stop, if you want us to move, then stop denying poor workers $15 in a union while 400 families make an average of $97,000 an hour. If you want us to move, then stop poisoning our water in poor, especially black communities. If you're mad as hell at Syria's Assad, you ought to be mad as hell at the politicians in Michigan and other states and other cities around the country who are passing laws that oppress people. You want us to move? Stop talking to us about the mythology of black crime. America has a criminal history and a violent history. If you're going to talk to us about black crime, talk to us about the Wall Street criminals that never get charged. If you want us to move, stop attacking our immigrant brothers and sisters. Stop attacking our Muslim brothers and sisters. Stop using our gay and lesbian and trans brothers and sisters as a scapegoat for your underhanded morality. You want us to move, stop feeding the prison industrial complex and give our public schools what they deserve to educate our children. If you want us to move, then stop these modern day false prophets 
from going into the White House and praying for our president and encouraging him to keep on doing what he's doing and never remind him and others that the Bible says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Woe unto them who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights. Never say that the Bible says to every nation, when was I hungry, did you feed me? When was I naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick, did you visit me? If you want us to move, then stop texting lies, stop telling lies, stop turning people against each other with lies. Because until you stop, we can't move. There you go. Too much is at stake. Too many martyrs have died. Too many tears have been cried. In the face of slavery, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass didn't move. In the face of Jim Crow, Harry T. Moore, Medgar Evers, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Abraham Heschel, and Ella Baker didn't move. And neither can we. We've got to stand. And when we've done all we can do, stand anyhow. Yeah! So that's what he was saying on December 31st of 2018, and not to me, that leads us into 2019. Tom? So events are going on all around the country right now. Um, cities everywhere, events like this, the word is getting out. Go ahead, Tom, that's in Buffalo. And the attacks continue, and these are the kind of things you'll see on the um, Facebook page. We demand, we demand, oops, go back. We demand fully funded welfare programs for the poor and an end to the attacks on SNAP, HEAP, and other vital programs for the poor. So they're out there working on that. What else are they working on, Tom? The Poor People's Campaign demands, demands an end to mass incarceration and the continuing inequalities for black, brown, and poor white people within the criminal justice system. Mass incarcerations have got to stop. Child labor, this one, I, when this one came across, this just broke my heart. About 452 children died as a result of workplace injuries between 2003 and 2016, according to the Government Accountability Office. 73 of those who died were age 12 or younger. Most of them are in farm accidents and agricultural type things. Uh, this is taking place in Union Hill, Virginia, where they are seeking a permit for a gas compressor station right in a historic African-American community. And gee, what do you guess? The problem is of con conflicting census data because they got things that say, nope, nobody lives there. And then they actually put people out there to go knocking on the doors and there's people who live there. And they don't want that thing in their, in their backyard. So they did actually get a stay on that one. About 100 people showed up and protested, and they did get a stay on that one. So let me see, Tom, what else we got? Okay, they, um, before we get into the statistics, I wanted to say a little bit about um, the idea of the fusion politics. The, the way this works with the Poor People's Campaign is that People come together for, whether it's, you know, the Sierra Club comes because they're concerned about a pipeline. Just because the pipeline gets stayed doesn't mean the Sierra Club leaves at that point because there's still work to be done. Nobody leaves the table until everybody gets what they need. And it's when everybody works together 
that things start to change. So I have another much shorter excerpt, again from one of uh, Dr. Barber's talks, and it's about the power of fusion. And he says, I know what staying together does biblically, but I also know what staying together has done historically. The truth is, when you hold on to truth and hope, justice never loses. I didn't say justice hasn't been fought. I didn't say justice hasn't been beat up. But justice has never lost. During slavery, it looked like justice had lost. But when Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and some Quakers and white evangelicals and Henry David Thoreau got together, they formed a fusion movement that brought about abolition. Women didn't have the right to vote, but when former slave Sojourner Truth and Quaker Lucretia Mott got together, they won the right to vote. Plessy versus Ferguson looked like it would carry the day, but when Thurgood Marshall got white lawyers and black lawyers and Jewish lawyers together, an all-white Supreme Court with one member who had been part of the KKK voted unanimous, unanimously to tear down separate but equal. It looked like Jim Crow had beaten down justice and was going to win, but when Rosa Parks got together with Martin King and Bayard Rustin and all of the other people, white and black, they tore down the system of Jim Crow. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, believes it is in the power of together that we will bring the change because we've done it. We've seen it. It's happened. And that little part that they put at the end that some people just say, well, we don't want, can't we just shorten that? Can't you do a little acronym for that? You don't do an acronym for moral revival. No, no, there is no acronym for that. And we have, we have a history. In the era of slavery, the gospel was read and preached every single Sunday, and people heard slavery's okay. That was a distortion of a moral narrative that was a travesty. Now, the interesting thing is, the slaves were reading the same scripture and they came out with, we will be free and you will not win. So the distortion to the moral narrative is drastic and it's happening and we hear it. I hear it from people in my own family and it appalls me how they are using the moral words of scripture to support racist and unfair practices. So yes, it is the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and that's what we call it. And I know Mary had something too that from, same, I didn't know she was reading this book. So it, I think Mary and I are slowly becoming symbiotic creatures in life.
in order to We have to stand with those who are in prison. In Kentucky, there's 23,022 citizens in prison. Of those, 24% are people of color. But blacks are incarcerated three times the rate of white folks. That's the new Jim Crow. So the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival. In Kentucky, there are plans to have a People's Congress. And that would be bringing people together to voice their needs and to, to build platforms from that to try to look at what kind of laws we need to enact and all of that. There are listening sessions. Earlier this year, uh, let's see, that was in November. November the 2nd, I believe. They had a listening session in Lexington. That was live stream. Dr. Barber came for that. They had people from the National there. And they said the energy in that room was was tremendous, that he was really on fire when he gave the last part of his speech. But you, you had people who spoke who had been impacted by the policies, and that's the voices that we need. When they had the, the mass march in, uh, in Washington, D.C. back in June of last year, people spoke who had been affected, and, and that was all that was done. They don't want politicians to be there. They want the, the voice of the people to come forward. Those who are the biggest thing I believe that they're going to be working on is voter suppression and voter registration uh, because of what Katie said you know, earlier. There are so many polling places that have been closed in your African-American uh, communities. Uh, you know, Early voting in, in some counties or states, you, you've got two weeks of early voting. People who are working can't get off in a 24-hour period to get in to vote in a 12-hour day. I mean, you know. So we're very limiting in this state, you know, because we do not have early voting. And I think that's something that we should address. Um, it looks like in June of 2019, there's gonna be another mass march to Washington, D.C. To, uh, to again speak to the powers that be in the, in the nation, national capital, uh, you know, the, the concerns of the people. And we've had enough, you know. There's a, there's a saying that they do, um, somebody's hurting my people and it's gone on far too long and I ain't gonna stand for it any longer. You know, so that's, that's our wish, I think, as a, as a community to, to get behind this uh, and to really support it, to look at all the information they have online. The uh, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth is a big supporter uh, in, in Kentucky of the Poor People's Campaign and they've been, they've been at their jobs for 30 years, you know, so they've got a lot of, of uh, track history and a lot 
Um, Mary gave you Kentucky statistics. We do have a few Owensboro statistics here as far as our population goes. You can see the numbers up there. And then Tom, the next one. The largest race or ethnic ethnicity living in poverty. Whites, 9,197. Black or African American, 1,439. Hispanic or Latino, 923. You see our largest numbers. And the next one, Tom. The highest average salary by race. Asians, 142,000. Whites, 45,000. Black or African American, 24,000. Quite a disparity. 20.4% of the population for whom poverty status is determined in Owensboro. That's about 11,000 people live below the poverty line, a number that is higher than the national average of 14%. The largest demographic living in poverty is female, 25 to 34, followed by males less than five, and then females 35 to 44. And as far as our um, immigrants, those coming in, the nationality between 2013 and 2017, these are the totals I found. Burma, 610, Somalia, 110, Cuba, 10, Ethiopia, 5, Indonesia, 3, India, 1, and 739 as a grand total there. And this reminds you all to come to the uh, Martin Luther King Day Junior March starting at 8.30 at Owensboro High School, or gathering at 8.30, marching at 9.00. Going to the program at 10, Dr. Arnold Farr will be there, and he will be talking more about the Poor People's Campaign, so a national call for moral revival, so we hope you will be able to join us for that. And, Tom, a shameless promotion from Nonviolent Owensboro. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yes. Um, we, we got involved in this because Mary and I, and Tom and several others in here were all part of not that started with nonviolent Owensboro and then we learned about the poor people's campaign and that seemed like a natural natural fit for us but our objective as a nonviolent Owensboro is not only the practice of nonviolent living ourselves but also the education of others of the practice of nonviolence so in that vein we are hosting a six-week series it's going to follow the week after all of the Martin Luther King events so starting January 27th uh, at 1UU, which is a Unitarian church at the corner of Cedar and Parish, we will be, we will be viewing the uh, documentary A Force More Powerful that, that chronicles six nonviolent direct actions of the 20th century that changed the world. And so they are listed there and listed here in this handy-dandy handout that we will give you before you leave. And, uh, but each week we will look at something different. The first one we're looking at is um, We Were Warriors, which is the U.S. civil rights in the Nashville uh, lunch counter sit-ins. And the whole purpose of, of having this series is to look at what worked in the 20th century, talk about why it worked, and then what can we learn from those successful campaigns to deal with the things we're dealing with in the 21st century? And so it's a very proactive kind of presentation, and it's only an hour. It's two to three 
on Sundays, uh, six consecutive Sundays at the 1UU. So hopefully come and join us. If you can't come, send a friend. Uh, you can come to one. You can come to all of them. They're freestanding, and they're, they're going to be very good. So hopefully you'll be able to join us. So, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am.
phone call. Here, read the, read the shirt, Mary, read the shirt. <laughs> 